Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. Did you know that MasterCard is one of the world's largest loyalty service providers? Working with leading global brands across financial services, travel, retail, dining, fuel and consumer goods, MasterCard designs loyalty strategies that build and sustain authentic personal relationships. Their loyalty platforms power points, cashback and offers programs to deliver MasterCard's priceless benefits and incentives in real time to your consumers. Visit go.mastercardservices.com slash LTL to learn how MasterCard can help you build stronger relationships through smarter engagement. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Loyalty, which is focused on the role of customer communications in driving our customer loyalty. Rick Ferguson is a loyalty thought leader with proven success transforming traditional corporate communications into innovative storytelling content across multiple platforms and on a global scale. Rick has worked for some of the biggest loyalty brands in the US on both the consulting and the technology side. Today, he shares his insights from more than 20 years experience, including a reminder of the three fundamental drivers of customer loyalty including trust, commitment, and reciprocity. And he explains how they relate to loyalty communications in practice. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rick Ferguson from Fabulosity. So, Rick Ferguson, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Hi, Paula. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's uh, really great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much, Rick. I know you have an incredible career in loyalty for many, many years. So I will be dying to dive into that. And I think you have an amazing actual expertise on the side of loyalty communications, which is the reason I wanted to have this conversation today, because I tend to think, you know, loyalty is something that we all know as an emotion. So as well as our transactional programs, I think the tone of voice that we use and all of the kind of tools and techniques that you've used throughout your career are exactly what we need to be thinking about as extra things that we can be doing. So before we get into all about loyalty communications, Rick, as you know, we always start this show asking our guests about their personal favorite loyalty programs to get a sense about what you admire. So why don't you kick us off and tell us your favorite loyalty program? Uh, great question, Paula. And when you told me that I uh, would be answering this question, I did spend a lot of time thinking about it because, um, you know, it's easy to just give a kind of the first answer that comes off the top of your head. And many people, uh, you know, as you might imagine, are going to mention a lot of the same programs because there, there's some consensus about, you know, who, the most successful programs yeah. uh, in the market. So I thought about it and um, I had the opportunity uh, a while ago in my role at AMIA uh, to uh, meet with the folks at, uh, from Harley Davidson, the motorcycle brand that ran the, the what they call the Harley Owners Group, okay. uh, HOG for short, which is one of the best <laughs> program names, you know, I've, totally. I've heard in my career. Super cool. Um, yeah. 
And uh, what's great about the program is, you know, first of all, it's it's embedded deeply in the brand because, as you know, yeah. um, Harley Davidson is an aspirational purchase, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the typical Harley customer is uh, not exclusively, but largely, you know, middle-aged men who. Yeah. Uh, have been successful in their careers and have worked very hard. And uh, this is something that they buying a Harley Davidson is something that they dreamed about for a long time. Sure. Uh, and now they finally get to make that purchase. And, you know, Harley, to their credit, doesn't want uh, someone to just purchase a Harley motorcycle and ride off into the sunset. Totally. Uh, they view that as just the very beginning of the relationship. Yeah. Uh, with the company. So yeah. um, it's, it's a fee-based program. You do have to pay to join. Okay. Um, it's a reasonable, it's a reasonable fee though. It's not, it's not terribly expensive. Mm. Uh, but once you, you make that commitment, uh, mm. you are introduced to a whole world of experiential uh, benefits through Harley Davidson, you know, everything from, you know, a monthly magazine to a dedicated websites and forums to, uh, probably the meat of the the program, which is exclusive rider events, which are held all over the country, and you can get on your Harley and ride to the event. And then there's you know road rallies and wow. uh, meetups, and you form real friendships and relationships with other Harley owners yeah. through this program that you would not necessarily uh, be able to enjoy otherwise. Yeah. Um, so it really does create the sense of community and family around the Harley brand yeah. uh, in a way that I, I don't I've not seen. I've seen few other programs do, you know, and there's no there's no points involved because, as you know, yeah. um, whether it's, you know, any type of vehicle or big ticket purchase mm. um, like a motorcycle or an automobile, um, yeah. there's a very long lead time and the idea of accumulating points for purchases just doesn't really work in that environment very well. Of course. Yeah. Um, so it all, it does have to be around experience and about building that sense of community and, mm. and the relationship with the brand between purchases, you know, because once you purchase a Harley, you're yeah. likely to keep that vehicle for 10 years, you know, yeah. and yeah. as we all know, Harley riders, motorcycle riders like to work on their mm. Uh, bikes. That's part of the whole process of owning one for, for many Harley riders. So yeah. um, they can network with other riders uh, yeah. and figure out how to do those types of things. So uh, mm. just in terms of building that and sustaining that emotional connection yeah. with a purchase, it would be very easy to just buy the the motorcycle and disengage yeah. um, their uh, track record with sustaining that sense of emotional loyalty yeah. through to the next purchase, even if it's 10 years away. Um, or, you know, in, in some cases building generational loyalty, you know, with yeah, yeah. a father buying a Harley and then, you know, giving that Harley to their child and then that child forming a relationship with Harley. Wow. Um, they've done it more successfully than, than, uh, most brands that I've seen in their space. Yeah. Uh, and I've always been a big fan of that program. So, uh, that was the answer that, that came to mind. Wow. Well, a very well thought through answer, Rick. So absolutely. Thank you for that. And uh, I'm, I've definitely added it now to the wish list of brands that mm -hmm. we need to interview on this show. So um, I'll make sure that we do reach out to them because I think what I'm hearing coming through from what you've said is it's absolutely incredible, of course, to have that relationship between the brand and the Harley owner. But what I'm loving is the community piece between each other. 
because I remember, in fact, we did an interview with IKEA and they said exactly the same thing. It's not just about the brand and the member communicating bi-directionally. It's actually that whole piece of, you know, what are the questions and answers that I have about a Harley that only another Harley owner, first of all, wants to indulge in that level of detailed geeking out. Like I can just imagine the joy in those conversations. But as a brand, it's a bit too corporate. You just can't do it. So I guess it fits in nicely as well with everything we're going to talk through today in terms of communications. But I really like that you've picked something, as I said, where that community is getting to to talk with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a longstanding um, marketing concept that I'm sure you're you're familiar with, you know, about the around the network effect, right? Yeah. Um, so anytime you just have the two-way communication between, you know, the brand and the the customer, there that can certainly be a robust relationship and there can certainly be an emotional component to mm-hmm. it. But what network effect teaches yeah. us is that um, the more nodes there are on the network, the more valuable the network yeah. becomes to each individual user. So in that context of the Harley Davidson yeah. uh, owner, yeah. um, just as you mentioned, um, the ability to connect with other Harley owners and have conversations that the brand is just facilitating, but not necessarily being a direct part of yeah. that has a lot of uh, emotional uh, value to the to the individual mm-hmm. consumer. And the more of those Harley riders that they're able to connect around the world, the yeah. more valuable that network becomes. Yeah, yeah. My one anecdote, and I'm not a Harley owner or even an aspirational owner, Rick, so you'll have to forgive me. But uh, when I first moved to Dubai back in 1995, I did date somebody who uh, was a Harley owner. And I can tell you, first of all, he kept it in his sitting room. <laughs> so to me, <laughs> that was a level of obsession, which I'd never seen before. But I can certainly tell you, I felt very safe on the bike because he loved the bike so much that even though I was just new to meeting him, you know, there was nothing going to happen to the bike, whether I was on it or not. So <laughs> that's great. That's a great it story. Was super fun. Super fun. So listen to me. I know as well as the Harley Owners Group, you also have a lot of respect for Apple from a very different perspective in terms of loyalty, because I know there's a, you know, a B2B 5% discount. We won't call that a loyalty program, but I think some people kind of think of it in those terms. But Apple has perhaps the most extraordinary loyalty of any brand in the world. So what is it that you think is that they're doing so well? And what is it about Apple that's really so successful when we think about loyalty as an emotion? Yeah, when I think about kind of a holistic, you know, customer loyalty strategy that um, is independent of any type of, you know, specifically branded loyalty program. Yeah. Um, obviously, Apple comes to mind as, as world-class uh, in building that loyalty. And, uh, you know, as I've spoken with loyalty operators, you know, around the world throughout my career, uh, mm. and as I've done research and wrote about uh, the topic, um, what I've learned is that you know, there is no loyalty program or points program or any any type of customer recognition or reward program uh, that can overcome a bad customer experience at the most (laughs) basic level. Totally. Yeah. So if the, if there's something off about the customer service or if the products aren't good uh, or if there's any type of fundamental thing that's broken about what you're delivering to your customers, um, then no loyalty program is going to fix that. Yeah. Um, what Apple has done, uh, first of all, they've done, they've gotten the basics right. They they deliver products that yeah. can, their customers want, 
They are aspirational. They tend to work flawlessly. And when I talk about the Apple ecosystem, what happens is if, you know, let's say you're a longtime Android user uh, and you've kind of just kept Apple at arm's length. My wife is a perfect example of this, right? Okay. Um, She was an, an Android user for most of her life, you know, started out with the BlackBerry, once smartphones came on the market, she became an Android user. Mm. Didn't really like Apple that much. Didn't did, preferred the, the the Android interface. Mm. Uh, and then when she we got married and she became you know part of our family with with my son and I, mm. um, we were longtime Apple guys. I was one of the I was a first generation iPhone owner, and I had used you know Macs long before that. Yeah. Um, and what happens is when you get that first Apple product, we're like, you know, come over to the dark side, yeah. get your Apple. We're all going to be on the same, you know, we're yeah. going to be on the same system. And she saw the wisdom in that. So she got her iPhone. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly, like everything works together. You know, we're able to be on the same family plan. We're able to uh, communicate with each other much more easily because we're all on the same platform. Mm. Um, and then you start adding more Apple products. Right. So it's like, well, I, I, I kind of like this iPhone now. So yeah. for Christmas, I'm going to ask for an, you know, for an Apple watch. So she yeah. added the Apple watch yeah. uh, to her Apple portfolio and myself, I've already got the iPhone. I've got the iPad. Mm-hmm. I'm talking to you on an iMac, right? Mm-hmm. I'm all in on the Apple uh, experience. And what happens is the more products you add, the more devices you add to your extended family network of Apple products, the more things you can do. And the more the, the, they work together flawlessly, they yeah. link up and, and, and just work and you don't have to think about it. There's, there's not a lot of, there's not a learning curve. So just the ability to create this ecosystem, I've heard it described as kind of a walled garden. Mm-hmm. Like once you're inside the Apple walled garden of products and services, yeah. you feel very safe. Everything works well. And you're kind of happy there. And there's a there it becomes kind of a almost a barrier to exit because once you've got all these Apple products, yeah. and they're all linked together and all working together. Yeah. Allison probably still pre- would prefer to be on an Android, but just because that's what she started using. But yeah. she's all in on the Apple ecosystem now, uh, <laughs> along with the rest of our family. And she's probably not going to leave anytime soon. Yeah. Um, but if Apple, you know, products didn't work that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, the, the price point was off or there was something about the, the experience uh, at that base level that didn't uh, work well mm-hmm. and, and build that kind of customer loyalty, yeah. then none of this would work. So yeah. just the ability to get folks into the Apple ecosystem, experience how well it works and mm-hmm. experience a high level of customer satisfaction with the products. That's just a fundamentally uh uh, well-executed loyalty strategy yeah. and uh, it's just worked well for them in a way that, you know, I doubt if you would ever see any type of, you know, Apple rewards points program or because no. they don't need it. It just works on a fundamental yeah. basic level of building that type of sustainable loyalty. Yeah. But it's, it's a point well made as well, Rick, because as you said, I think as loyalty professionals, it's incumbent upon us within our organizations to make sure that there's never this perception that a loyalty program can fix, you know, underlying basics that may be um, not functioning to the level that customers expect them to. So, so Apple is absolutely perfect for that. But the other thing that struck me as you were talking it through is the, the degree of innovation. So, you know, when I 
I think about the audience listening to this show, actually 70% are listening on Apple Podcasts. So, right. you know, even that degree of strength, given how competitive, you know, Spotify, for example, have invested hundreds of millions in, um, you know, supporting podcast creators, for example, with the likes of Joe Rogan and all this kind of stuff. But but Apple was first. So whether it's back to iTunes or anything else, like I think that level of vision also creates loyalty because people just think that's so cool. Oh my God. And the app store right. and all of those other things. So yeah, I know it's quite different to what we normally do talk about, but that was part of the reason I wanted you on the show because I do think you have quite a unique perspective. So Tell us a bit about your career, Rick. You've alluded to AMIA as one particular mm -hmm. um, incredible organization, but just give us the highs of what you've done in, in loyalty throughout your career. Uh, yeah, I, I got my start in loyalty um, back uh, in the late 90s with a little company that's uh, no longer with us called Frequency Marketing. Um, they were based in Ohio, where, where I lived at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time when I joined the company, I didn't know anything about loyalty programs or customer loyalty. You know, I was just, yeah. um, I was a writer and a web designer and and that's what they look for. Yeah. Uh, and I met my first mentor in the business. Um, he was kind of one of the pioneers of customer loyalty, one of the founding fathers, okay. um, a gentleman named Rick Barlow. Uh, he had gotten his start with American Express. Okay. And then after the American Air, after American Airlines launched the Advantage program uh, back in the 80s, yeah. he kind of saw, you know, in a visionary way that that was a concept that was going to spread beyond the airlines. Yeah. So he formed this agency to start, you know, selling loyalty yeah. consulting and products and services. So wow. he was one of that first wave of, of uh, loyalty providers that came onto the market after the, yeah. the airlines launched the frequent flyer programs. So very well regarded you know, a figure in the loyalty industry back at the time. Um, and at the time, in addition to my day job, I was also a film critic. I had a, a website okay. wow. and I was fairly well regarded as an online film critic at the time. Uh -huh. uh, and when I applied for the job of running his uh, company uh, magazine called Colloquy, which was one of the uh, yes. uh, first loyalty publications in the marketplace. Yeah. Um, you know, I applied for the job and he had looked at my resume and saw that I was a film critic and read a bunch of my reviews. And coincidentally, his son was a budding filmmaker oh, wow. uh, who was writing a script and was going to shoot his first film. Uh -huh. And uh, Rick was kind of uh, uh, helping his son through that process. So I come into the job interview with, with Rick Barlow and for 90 minutes, we don't talk about the job at all. We don't talk about <laughs> loyalty. We don't talk about colloquy. We don't talk about anything but movies oh, for wow. 90 minutes. That's all wow. we talked about. Yeah. And then at the end of 90 minutes of talking about movies, he's like, yeah, I think you could do the job. And he <laughs> hires me. Amazing. So I That's started running the colloquy yeah. magazine and website. Okay. And there were a lot of people that worked at frequency marketing at the time. Mm. that were, um, you know, kind of folks that are still, many of them are still in the business today and have moved on to, yeah. to have great success outside. But that was a really good incubator for, for loyalty concepts and loyalty strategy at the time. And a lot of the yeah. um, terminology that we use to talk about loyalty programs like hardened soft benefits and mm -hmm. concepts like that, we invented those at Colloquy and we kind of define the language of how yeah. people talk about loyalty programs. Wow. Um, so it was a great 
uh, incubator to get a deep dive into the whole concept of customer loyalty and how to design and execute a successful loyalty program. Yeah. So I was kind of the uh, the voice in the face of Colloquy, mm-hmm. uh, and then went from there to um, a company that at the time was called Group Aeroplan, based in uh, Montreal, operated the uh, Air Miles program mm-hmm. for, um, or not the Air Miles program, the uh, Aeroplan program for Air yeah. Canada. Okay. And yeah. uh, I've worked with another great mentor there, uh, Rupert Duchesne, um, who was the guy who worked at Air Canada, who mm-hmm. pioneered the concept of spinning off the uh, the frequent flyer program into a separate company. Okay. So they did that. They spun mm-hmm. off uh, the aeroplane program mm-hmm. into a company called Group Aeroplan mm-hmm. and then started acquiring other companies. So they acquired mm-hmm. Carlson Marketing in the U.S. Wow. Uh, and they acquired the uh, Nectar program. Uh, in the UK, yeah, and yeah. they uh, started assembling this this large multinational mm-hmm. uh, loyalty conglomerate, and then brought me over to run thought leadership uh, for uh, Group Aeroplan, and then I was part of the whole uh, team that rebranded Group Aeroplan into uh, Amia, which became uh, the the name of the company, combined company. Yeah. So again, I got to work with great people like Rupert and. Mm. Uh, expanded my remit, you know, just from the U.S. to globally. Super. And uh, as uh, part of my um, uh, remit at uh, AMIA, I started going all over the world and talking about loyalty. So um, I always joke, and it's true, that I've given a speech about customer loyalty on every continent on Earth except for Antarctica. <laughs> okay. So at some point I need to get to Antarctica <laughs> just and give box. a speech about loyalty just so I can say that I've done, done it. I'm everywhere. sure somebody will come. I can't promise it'll be me, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> cool. But, okay. uh, yeah, it was yeah. a great experience. And I got to, you know, I got to, um, uh, go to uh, Mumbai in India and uh, deliver a workshop, you know, workshops and speeches. And yeah. uh, I got to go to South America and I got to go to South Africa. And um, I hadn't, I haven't made it to the Middle East yet. So I'm hoping to do that at some point. Okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just, it was just a tremendous experience to be able to, yeah. you know, just globe trot and uh, talk, yeah. meet groups of people and operators and talk about customer loyalty and talk about best practices and to be able to do research yeah. in uh, all these markets. So uh, I was very blessed to, to have that experience. And uh, it's just been a, a wild ride for somebody that, you know, when he walked into that uh, Rick Barlow's office and, and talked about movies, I had no idea that it would lead here to talking with you. So it's been, it's been wow. a fun time. A roller coaster. So bring us up to date then, Rick, what are you working on now in 2023? Well, it's a combination of things. Um, after I left AMIA, I took some uh, time off and, you know, like many writers, I always want, had a, you know, a novel in my back pocket. And, uh, you know, once I left AMIA, my wife was like, you know, you should take some time and do it. So I did it. Wow. Uh, so since I left AMIA, I've um, had a combination of working with um, loyalty providers in the background, still doing thought leadership work, okay. um, but without my name on it, you know, helping them, you know, build okay. their brands and build their content yeah. uh, and get into the marketplace. So I've been doing a lot of that. Yeah. And uh, then being uh, putting my novelist hat on on the side. So I've been able to to do both, which has been a real blessing to to uh, scratch that itch, but at the same time, keep my, uh, my foot yeah. in the loyalty game. 
Yeah. And I have to say your LinkedIn profile, Rick, is probably the best I've ever seen in terms of how it's written. <laughs> so I, I really honestly, because as as a, I guess as a content creator, if I think about my own kind of, you know, efforts in, in writing thought leadership, um, it is extremely difficult to do. And I'm always kind of looking for somebody who can actually capture my attention. And so I, I just want to make sure that everybody does look at your LinkedIn, actually, just purely from that perspective, because when I think think about loyalty communications and so much of it is bland and, you know, it's just not cutting through in terms of appealing to me and making feel that emotional connection. But I remember the first time it struck me, Rick, and I don't know if you have any perspective on this one, um, but it goes back to Groupon, of all things, as a... Mm -hmm you know, radically new uh, business model when it emerged. I can't remember exactly what years, but let's say it was 10 years ago. I can't exactly remember. But when Groupon started with its marketing communications, again, apart from obviously the incredible deals, it was always the copywriting that grabbed my attention. It was right. so compelling. And I think that's the first time I had that level of respect for writing in terms of, for example, what you've talked us through in terms of your career. So, would you say that it's something that is well understood by loyalty professionals that it has that much power if you do it right? Well, I mean, I think certainly, yeah. I mean, the most successful programs, I would say, uh, are definitely going to take that voice into account um, because one of the key uh, things you have to remember uh, is that customers are very adept at sniffing out um, dishonesty mm. or disingenuousness, yeah. Yeah. right? So if there's a disconnect between what your copy is saying about your, your brand or your loyal, even in your loyalty program directly yeah. and the experience that the customer has when they're interacting with you, yeah. they're going to catch that uh, disconnect right away. And it's going to actually have the opposite effect yeah. of what you intend. Yeah. Um, so the, as important as the voice is, it mm. cannot be disconnected from what you're actually delivering yeah. uh, through the experience of your program. And I think that's probably if there's a, a disconnect that I think maybe some uh, that it's easy to overlook if you're an operator and you're focused on the, you know, the financials of the program and, yeah. and uh, you're focusing on all the operational components. You yeah. know, if you're saying that, if you're saying through, you know, an email interaction or some other customer touch point that your reward, your reward program is the most rewarding in the business. And yet a customer just read an email from you saying that you've slashed your funding rate and suddenly all the rewards are going to cost more. Yeah. They're going to catch that disconnect and your yeah. clever corporate voice is not going to overcome that disconnect. Yeah. So I think that's probably the, the, the basic blocking and tackling that I think folks need to remember is mm. don't promise anything in your communications that you you're operationally not delivering yeah. and make sure the, the tone of your communications matches the experience that your customers are having with the brand. Yeah. And what I always think it comes back to Rick is, you know, the, the level of integrity actually, you know, coming from the brand, because that's where, you know, you can't necessarily always monitor those communications with that kind of perspective all of the time, unless it's something that's inherent in terms of what the the objective of the, of the program is fundamentally. Uh, would that make right. sense? Yeah. Like 
to me, like I got into loyalty as, you know, everyone listening has probably heard me say a hundred times, but I got into it with the priority program with O2. Telecommunications is not sexy, super competitive, but they loved their customers and, and working there was a joy. So when we did run the loyalty program, we got to do stuff and we wanted to do stuff that delighted people. So the copy was always amazing. Like right. <laughs> it, it's actually, you know, it, it's it's one thing to kind of, you know, understand it intellectually, but I think it's only when we work for brands and it sounds like you've worked for plenty of them through your career with all these kind of amazing roles. But to me, it comes back to what is the program intended to do? How do we want our members to feel? And therefore, the copy will be done with that mindset. So there would never be that situation, you know, where theoretically, of course, you know, programs are devalued. That does happen, but it would never happen that it wouldn't be picked up. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Super. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask you, like, principle wise, then, like, you know, when you think about what does create loyalty, you know, communications is absolutely one. But I know you have some good ideas about the the fundamentals in terms of even from an academic perspective. So I'd love you just to share some of those for, you know, just to share your expertise. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, I did some work when I was with Amia, I had mentioned that uh, Amia acquired Carlson Marketing in the U.S. And there's a lot of really smart people there mm. uh, that I met, you know, when I joined the company. And they had done um, some proprietary academic research that they then turned into a consulting product. At the time, it was called um, Relationship um, Score. They they had uh, some work that they had done with the University of Alabama. Okay. Uh, some marketing professors there, mm. uh, and they had really tried to determine um, at a fundamental level what activities uh, a, a company could do or brand could do and deliver that would build sustainable loyalty. And they kind of distilled those down into some core concepts. And mm. then when I arrived, we did some additional research and kind of refine those concepts. Mm. Uh, and we called them the fundamental drivers of loyalty. And they're the expectations that your customers have mm. of you when they be begin a, an interaction with you by purchasing a product for the first time or interacting with your, even interacting with your reward program, yeah. uh, the things that they expect from you and the feelings that they want to experience from you um, that will help them feel that sense of emotional loyalty that we all hope that we'll have with our customers. Yeah. Um, and we, the fundamental drivers that we settled on were around the concepts of trust and commitment and reciprocity. And if mm. you think about any relationship that you have, even a personal relationship that you have with a with a spouse or a partner or yeah. even a friend, yeah. um, those are the expectations that you have out of that relationship. The expectations yeah. are you want to be able to trust this person, right? Uh, you trust that this person has your back, that they have your best interests at heart, that yeah. they won't do anything dishonest or deceitful. Um, it's a fundamental uh, ability to know that you can um, count on this person, or in this case, in a corporate context or a, a loyalty context, a brand. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to be able to count on that brand. Uh, and the, the the first way you have to do that, as we've already mentioned, is through executing those fundamentals well uh, yeah. on an operational level mm -hmm. um, so that there is trust there. Mm -hmm. For example, it's just happened yesterday. I, I went to pick up this microphone that I'm wearing, right, from an electronics retailer yeah. here in the U.S., which I won't name. Okay. Um, but I, I'd been in this electronics retailer for a while because for a lot of reasons, right, because 
you know, COVID and I've, we've shifted largely in our household to online shopping. Okay. Um, so we get probably five to six Amazon packages a day, right. Uh, delivered <laughs> wow. at our house. But I said, I need this microphone. I'm not going to be able to get it delivered yeah. to me in time. I'm just going to go to the store and buy one. Mm. And, you know, this is a big well-known electronics retailer and they've got a good reputation and they've, they've done a lot of good things in the, in the loyalty space. But I walk in there and the shelves are almost bare. You know, I get to the section where the microphone should be and it's a bunch of empty shelves and they've, there's only like two or three products on the shelves. And I'm looking around thinking to myself, you know, there's a bunch of board employees here and there's no inventory in the store and wow. no one yeah. is offered to help me. Right. Yeah. So right away, I've had a bad experience with this brand. I already don't have that level of trust. Yeah. And there's nothing that they're going to be able to do within the context of offering me a reward program that's yeah. going to overcome that experience. So yeah. the trust is not there right away. Yeah. Um, so that's the core element of trust is being able to mm. um, make promises that you can keep. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always a fundamental promise inherent in any brand expression. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, your experience as a customer does not align with what the brand says it is, then the trust is broken. Yeah. So you've got to get that right, right away. And that extends into your loyalty communications as well, mm -hmm. as we just talked about, because anything that you communicate yeah. through your loyalty program channels has got to match what the customer is actually experiencing. Yeah. So that's the trust component. Okay. Um, then there's the uh, commitment component, mm -hmm. which, uh, basically defines the difference between a short-term transactional relationship mm -hmm. and a relationship that has staying power. The customer wants to understand that you are committed to them. Yeah. Uh, and probably from a communications perspective, the best way that you can demonstrate that commitment is through uh, what we call memory, right? So okay. you want to demonstrate that you, that as a brand, that you have a memory of the relationship. So mm -hmm. if a customer joins your reward program mm -hmm. uh, and starts interacting with you, Mm -hmm. um, they want to sense that you are paying attention to them, mm -hmm. uh, that you remember what they bought the last time that yeah. you, uh, maybe are able to tell them in a non-intrusive way. We understand that you're interested in these products. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is an offer that will appeal to you. So mm -hmm. it's all, that's all about personalization, right? Yeah. Yeah. And using data effectively, yeah. uh, in a way that the consumer demonstrates uh, or feels that, you yeah. as a brand are paying attention to them and that you're committed to the relationship over the long term. And it's not just, okay, you bought a product from us. See you later. We don't yeah. care if we have any interaction with you beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the commitment part. And then mm -hmm. the last piece of it is reciprocity. Again, mm -hmm. if you think of a personal relationship, um, if it's a one-sided relationship, if you're the one that has to always call, yeah. if you're the one that's doing all, making all the effort in the relationship and the other party is just not trying very hard, yeah. eventually you're going to disengage. You know, <laughs> this isn't working for me. I'm not getting, I'm putting a lot of work into this relationship yeah. and I'm not getting anything out of it. Yeah. So it's the same again with a brand relationship. Yeah. Um, if a customer is engaged with you and they like your products and they're spending a lot of money with you and they have a sense that they're a valuable customer yeah. uh, and they don't see any reciprocity coming back from you, from the, the company mm -hmm. then they're going to disengage and they're vulnerable to switching and they're vulnerable to competitive offers. Yeah. Uh, and the way that you demonstrate reciprocity is through those classic concepts of recognition and reward. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reward you for your loyalty by giving you a little something extra mm -hmm. points, discounts, 
mm. uh, all the things that we know work within the context of a loyalty program. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to recognize you as a valuable customer by giving you, you yeah. know, exclusive access, making you feel like an insider, bringing yeah. you into the fold. That's the the way that we demonstrate reciprocity. Yeah. And these three concepts, trust, commitment, and reciprocity, they're kind of like the three legs of a stool, right? Or yeah. uh, the three vertices of a triangle. Mm. You cannot fall down on any one of them. You have to make yeah. sure that you're you're conveying those emotions mm. through your uh, program operations and through your fundamental brand operations to the customer. Yeah. And if you're doing that as well you, as you can, mm. then the customer is going to respond by starting to feel that emotional commitment and attachment to yeah. the brand that we all hope that we're going to achieve. Yeah. And it sounds like actually, Rick, even though that research, you know, was done an awful long time ago, like they still hold true. Like, you know, when there's fundamental truths and I really, that's what I'm hearing coming through is like, you know, yes, there's lots of other things that we do need to think about and perhaps it's more complex, but those fundamentals need to be there. And it always amazes me that it is just, how does the member actually feel? Maybe it's the same thing about integrity. How do they feel that brand is demonstrating particularly this trust, this commitment, this reciprocity? And I thought actually your, your you know, idea of it being like a personal relationship is very good advice for anyone listening to this show. You know, if we're concerned, confused, or maybe even internally having to negotiate changes to a program, be they good or bad campaigns or who, who knows what, you know, how would I want to be treated as an individual? It's a very simple but powerful idea that actually should keep most of our loyalty programs, I think, totally on track. Yeah, I agree with that. And what's funny, those of us that have been around, uh, you know, the business for a little while and we've lived through Groupon and yeah. uh, we've seen some concepts come and go and some different loyalty strategies come and go. Um, a lot of these fundamentals we've been talking about for, for quite some time now. Yeah. Uh, and we're st still talking about them today because there's still a challenge for brands to get things right at a fundamental level, like using data effectively yeah. and personalizing effectively. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure you have experience with programs that, that you're involved with today mm. and I do as well, where you're kind of surprised at, because you know how much data yeah. the company has on you. They yeah. know everything that you've purchased. Mm -hmm. They know what communications you're responding to mm -hmm. and it shouldn't it shouldn't be that difficult to deliver an offer that does have that surprising level of personalization where uh, yeah. you get open up the email and you say, Oh, that's a, that's a great offer. Yeah. I would, I, I, this is an offer that's ideal for me. I'm going to respond to it, mm. but there's still a, a, a lot of companies, even companies that have been in the game for a long time that aren't necessarily doing that yeah. as effectively as they could. Yeah. Um, I think the good news is, you know, in the old days, it was, much more of a challenge is because the tools weren't available. Yeah. But I think with today's, you know, loyalty platforms and all uh, all the other, you know, AI and machine learning stuff that's going on in the background, yeah. uh, I think there is an opportunity now to finally get some of these things right yeah. uh, in a way that was that's much easier than it was in the past. So yeah. uh, I'm actually excited to see what, what operators are going to do with some of these new tools. Yeah. Uh, and I would expect to see, you know, kind of a, an explosion of personalization yeah. uh, over the next few years as uh, some of these tools come into play. 
Yeah. And I guess particularly as a writer, actually, Rick, I was just beginning to think there, you know, what is your perspective on AI, you know, in the context of ChatGPT and these tools that, you know, are unfortunately, I think, probably going to do a lot as a lot of damage as well as uh, you know maybe save a lot of time for a lot of people i think it's it's so early we don't really know but given that you are on the creative side and a thought leader what would you say or what is your perspective on on the the writing tools like like chatgpt well uh, i've been i kind of dove in head first so i've actually been using some of these tools quite a bit um and, and i think the short answer is um they're they are potentially very disruptive, but um, disruptive in a good way. I mean, my sense is uh, so, uh, some of the doomsayer doomsaying that we've heard about these tools, mm. I think, is a bit overblown. Uh, what's funny is this morning, as I was doing my you know my news scrolling, I do in the morning when I'm having my coffee. Yeah, I saw this um, advertisement uh, video uh, that a uh, creative person had done. Mm -hmm. uh, a fictional pizza company, a pizza okay. delivery company. Mm -hmm. And he created an ad for this company that was done entirely with AI tools. The script was written by chat GPT. Mm. The uh, images were created in mid journey. The video was created by a different AI program. Mm. The um, uh, music was created by an AI program. So the entire thing was artificially generated. This And it was a 30 second commercial for wow. a pizza chain, yeah. fictional pizza chain. Yeah. And this thing is like something out of a nightmare. Like <laughs> it's really, really bizarre. Okay. The script is bizarre. The videos are bizarre. Yeah. It, it's literally like something you'd, you'd see on Saturday Night Live. It was so weird. Okay. And so I, I look at that and I say, okay, these tools have a little ways to go yeah. before they're going to replace writers yeah. and and design, yeah. graphic designers. Yeah. That's not to say they won't because the yeah. tools are only going to get better. Of course. So even though it's bizarre nightmarish today, yeah. five years from now, that you're probably going to be able to completely artificially generate a, a campaign or a, a commercial yeah. without any writers or designers involved. So mm. I think for folks on the creative side, um, you're not going to be able to fight this progress. So yeah. I think you're going to have to find a way to live with it, to use the tools and to, to, to make yourself that connection between the, the AI tools and the companies that you're working for and yeah. becoming an expert in using those tools effectively. So that's where I see it going. And I've seen that happen mm. um, just from my fiction writing standpoint. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I have written some historical fiction and research would tend to take a really, really long time. But now I can go to chat GPT and say, mm. um, I need an expression in German that was in common usage in the 1860s and boom, spits wow. it right out. Okay. Right? So suddenly my research yeah. time has been cut in half wow. in terms of loyalty programs and loyalty communications. Mm -hmm. Obviously these tools are going to be integrated mm -hmm. and I think there's some real opportunity to do a lot of things faster. So yep. you're going to be able to generate, you know, AI text, mm -hmm. you know, a hundred different emails campaigns. You're going to be able to generate those with AI. You're going yeah. to be able to immediately put them out. You're going to be able to test what's working yeah. and refocus on those things that are working and expand those. And all those tools, are, I think, are really going to yeah. um, provide a lot of, a lot of opportunity 
for marketers to do a lot of things faster. And for the folks on the creative side, yeah. my advice would be make peace with the tools, learn <laughs> yeah. how to use them yeah. and become an invaluable component of that process. And you may find that it opens up new mm. avenues of creativity that we we don't even comprehend yet. Right. Yeah. So I try not to be a, on the doomsaying side. I, I, I try to mm. um, try to work with the new technology, but I will say that, you know, those of us uh, uh, that, you know, Gen X folks that have been around for a while, mm. we've lived through a couple of these tech tech revolutions now. Right. So sure. we've yeah. lived through the rise of the internet. Yeah. We lived through the rise of smartphones. Mm. And this feels like another one of those. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting the same feeling that I got, mm. you know, in the in the 90s when we're all trying to figure out what the internet is and, and when smartphones first came on the market. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel kind of the same way I did then. So I think it's we're in store for exciting times yeah. from a technology front and being able to use these tools. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the key thing that I'm learning as well, I guess, is they do need to be trained and you yes. can train them, for example, like, you know, write an article in the style of Rick Ferguson, for example, or write an article in the style of Paula Thomas. So that is that is really an interesting idea as well. But yeah, I think in time, the same way you kind of, you know, talked earlier, for example, about when consumers sense a disconnect, I have a feeling that we'll also develop that um, almost sixth sense about AI written content. You know, we'll start to distinguish the human, you know, whether it's humor or or expertise or I'm not quite sure why I think that, but I really feel that it's 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 probably going to remain quite formulaic for some time because we know it's only kind of regurgitating kind of recent content. So I think there is a lot of similarity already that we all see on all the blogs in the world. So yeah, hopefully we'll start to uh, have our, you know, AI detectors <laughs> and our yes. human detectors. I think that's going to, so back to, I guess, which is a key principle, I guess, as well for loyalty is that idea about authenticity you know, when you talked about commitment earlier, to me, authenticity comes through, for example, in our work, because everybody knows it's me and I'm the one writing the description and I'm the one doing the stuff. So I know it's different right. at scale, but um, yeah, there's so much in it, Rick. Um, so listen, um, we don't have that much long left. And I really did want to focus on the communications and its role in driving loyalty. So will you share some words of wisdom in what you think are the key components of, uh, you know, amazing and communications in order to achieve loyalty in the way that we all really want to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just on the creative level, obviously you want to have, a, a as we mentioned, an authentic uh, brand voice that's expressed um, both through your copy, through your images, um, and in a way that's consistent with the customer experience, mm -hmm. uh, as we mentioned. So I think um, there's a lot of great examples of that in the marketplace, you know, it, it, and folks respond to that voice. Yeah. Um, I think one of the um, things that we'll, we'll take into account again, as a lot of content is, is becomes AI generated is that folks uh, readers, you know, just on, whether it's a novelist or any type of creative person, they want to feel like they have a relationship with that writer yeah. Um, folks respond to individuals and they respond to people and they, 
It, mm. it, they'll feel a sense of, of a relationship with the writer that they've never met in person through their work. Yeah. Uh, and that's not something that can ever be replicated through AI, right? You're never going to have that type of, oh, yeah. I can't wait to read the next book by this AI program, right? <laughs> um, you're going to want to read the next book by Stephen King because you've read enough of his work yeah. that you feel like you have a relationship with them. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be the same thing with brands, right? Yeah. So I think that human component is always going to be essential. Yeah. Um, that voice is not something that's necessarily going to be able to be replicated by AI. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's got to be delivered consistently across every channel, whether it's through your loyalty program, through your customer service, mm -hmm. um, through interactions in the store. You want mm -hmm. to have that voice nailed uh, so that customers respond to it. And that mm -hmm. in itself can create a bit of a, an emotional connection between the mm -hmm. customer and the brand. Mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously, as we've talked about, um, we're going to have to see uh, that continuing drive towards personalization. Yeah. Um, and even today, again, I'm surprised by some of the basic blocking and tackling yeah. um, that doesn't happen in terms of just being able to take that one piece of data you know, your last purchase mm. and communicate that back to the to the customer yeah. through an email uh, mm. that says, hey, we know you just purchased this. Yeah. How about these products? They would go, they would work well with this product or based on your choices, mm. we think this is going to be a good, good fit for you. Yeah. Um, reward offers that follow that, those same personalization guidelines. Um, for example, I'm a big live music fan. And I see a ton of concerts and I, I've purchased, you know, early access concerts that are offered through my credit card provider. Right. So mm -hmm. my credit card provider will say, yeah, um, you know, here's a code. Go to this Ticketmaster, put this code in. Yeah. Tickets don't on, go on sale until, you know, May 5th. But you're going to have access on May 1st. So you can have you can yeah. have that early yeah. access to the show. I love that. But by the same token, uh, I've never, ever seen in the 10 years that I've been a, a card holder with this company, I have not once seen an email come in mm. with a reward offer based on something that I've redeemed from them before or purchased wow. from them before. Yeah. It seems like they should be doing this all, <laughs> you know, and there's yeah. the yeah. one time that I, I thought I was, I had gotten one, uh -huh. I saw an email that said, it was a concert event, exclusive concert event for an artist that I liked. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they finally did it. Uh -huh. I open up the email and it's uh, in California, oh. right? And I'm, <laughs> I was in Ohio at the time, right? Oh, so I'm like, well, God. yeah, actually they didn't do it because no. they didn't make that data connection and give me something yeah. local, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's just that basic level of personalization that we need to see yeah. in our rewards communications and the offers that we send. Yeah. That's going to be critical. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, finally, I think it's the, uh, as we get towards that level of personalization, um, it's understanding where the line is between being facilitating the relationship and being intrusive. Mm. Um, a gentleman that I used to work with at um, Loyalty One uh, who purchased FMI Mm. And uh, the Colloquy brand, um, a gentleman named Brian Pearson, he was president of the Air Miles Reward Program for many I years. I know, Brian. Yeah, um, he's he been used on to, the show. He, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He probably talked, he may have even talked about this uh, when he was on your podcast, but he yeah. used to do this, um, uh, deliver this great speech at the conferences about the difference between cool and creepy. 
uh-huh. and where that line was, you know, yeah. the, the idea of getting that offer where you're like, oh, that's very cool. You know, this is great. And it's exactly yeah. what I was hoping to get yeah. versus, wow, this is very intrusive. And yeah. I'm kind of creeped out now. The classic <laughs> example of that, uh, this is an old example, but it's the only one that comes to mind. Uh, it was about 10 years ago. There was a retailer yeah. uh, in the U.S., kind of a uh, just a general, you know, discount retailer. Okay. And uh, they delivered um, this camp personalization campaign where they sent emails with offers for um, products that would appeal to new mothers, you know, because they could tell from the purchase history that this customer had had a pregnancy, right? Wow. Or was pregnant or was pregnant in the middle Uh of their pregnancy and they would send them offers. Well, some of these customers had not told their families that they were with child, right? Wow. So suddenly this spectacularly backfired. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of customer backlash because they, the customers found this very intrusive because yeah. they just did it. They did it without permission. It wasn't opt-in. Yeah. And this was even before social media had become, you know, the yeah. all-encompassing beast that it is now. So you can imagine if something like that happened today, yeah. the reaction that there would be on, on social media. So that's a, kind of a stark example of the line between cool and creepy. Mm. But as we incorporate more of these personalization tools, we're yeah. going to have to be very cognizant of where that line is and make sure that yeah. everything that we're delivering is opt-in and the consumers aren't, are going to be delighted yeah. by it rather than horrified by it. And to be honest, Rick, I'm hoping that happens once, you know, the cookies are finally killed off, which, you know, we've been promised now for a while. I've given up trying to check on when it's actually going to happen. Do you think it'll be a good thing or a bad thing for us as Internet users if we even think beyond loyalty? But, you know, with with cookies disappearing, of course, you know, first party data, zero party data become absolutely essential. So I think our industry is going to thrive. But what do you think otherwise? Like, do you think it's going to be better? or worse from a a human being's perspective? Oh, I I think it's good. I mean, um, you know, that that type of, you know, uh, third-party tracking and, you know, all the retargeting that happens over the internet, like, and it's still happening today, as you just mentioned, like, I always know exactly what my wife is looking for online (laughs) because for some reason, if she's looking for it, it starts to, the ads start to show up in my own online experience. God, Rick, I haven't made that connection. I'll be going through my Facebook feed and I'll be like, oh, Allison was looking at tops today because suddenly I'm seeing ads for tops show up in my feed, right? This is happening right now. That's quite intrusive that I don't like them having that level of uh, personalization about my family. And I didn't give them permission to do it. I didn't ask for it. It's just showing up. Right. So that's been going on for about 10 years now. And I think once this, this Mm. whole concept of third-party tracking, uh, it is finally put to bed, then we're going to get back to those fundamentals, which loyalty programs have long, that type of environment, marketing environment has long done better than any other, uh, type of marketing initiative. It's, yeah. You know, everything is opt-in. You understand clearly what you're giving up in exchange for those recognition and rewards. Yeah. Yes, I do give you permission to track what I'm buying and to track the offers that I'm responding to. And yeah. because I know that you're doing that, I expect that I'm going to see that come back to me yeah. in a closed loop 
in the form of rewards that I respond to and recognition that I respond to and, uh, and communications yeah. that appeal to me. And it's the transparency of that value exchange that yeah. I think loyalty programs do better than any other marketing initiative. Yeah. And because of that, the so-called death of the cookie, that zero party data and that that first party data, loyalty yeah. programs have been, you know, one of the best vehicles for collecting that data. Yeah. For, 25, 30 years. Yeah. Uh, and now I think we're, to your point, we're going to see that refocus back on collecting that da- that data and data yep. that companies own and consumers know that they own it. And uh, again, I think the transparency of that exchange yeah. is going to be key. So I'm yeah. optimistic that I think uh, we're going to see a, a, a renaissance uh, around these types of initiatives because of their ability to, to do this so effectively. Absolutely. Well, very wise words indeed, Rick. Um, I feel like we need to continue the conversation at some point, dare I say, in the future. Uh, Not exactly sure when, but um, there's a lot of wisdom there in terms of what you're thinking about and writing about and really, you know, paying close attention to um, in your own world. So really want to say a huge thank you for joining us on the show today. And for people who do want to follow your work, Rick, either the, the marketing content or, you know, the fantasy fiction, where can people reach out and find you? Um, for my loyalty hat, um, I'm definitely uh, active on LinkedIn. So um, I think you'll be seeing more from me coming out through that channel. Okay. Um, you'll probably see um, a Substack coming out soon. Very good. Um, so I'll cool. let people know about that yeah. once it's available. Mm-hmm. And uh, then if you like, uh, you know, fantasy swords and sorcery kind of stuff, you can check out my uh, website at uh, fabulosity.com and you'll you'll see all that stuff there. Amazing. Um, so I'll probably still continue to do both. But um, within this context, um, I hope to continue to yeah. to pump some good content out there and uh, hope that we'll be able to chat again soon. Please, God, absolutely. And I do want to say a huge thank you to Dave Battiston as well for connecting us and uh, insisting that I spoke with you. So uh, I know know we're both good friends of Dave. So uh, thanks, Dave, for the introduction. So with all of that said, Rick Ferguson, Principal and Managing Director at Fabulosity. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. Thanks so much, Paula. Thanks for having me. This show is brought to you by the Australian Loyalty Association the leading organization for loyalty professionals in Asia-Pacific. Visit their news and content hub for the latest loyalty insights from around the world. Or why not submit your own article for publication? For more information on their loyalty services and networking opportunities, visit AustralianLoyaltyAssociation.com. so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.